Nationalism is an ideology that asserts the right of nationhood of a particular group, affirms the cultural similarities of members of the nation, and draws boundaries for the group vis-à-vis -vis others who are deemed outsiders. The central contention of nationalists is that political boundaries should be coterminous with cultural boundaries. Thus, the concept of the nation has always seemed to be inextricably bound to the concept of the state. But how does one define a nation? Scholars and movements have used various criteria, including language, ethnicity, common territory, common history, and cultural traits. One influential definition conceptualized during the course of the mobilization of diverse populations in revolutionary struggles against the Russian Empire holds that a nation is a historically evolved, stable community of language, territory, economic life and psychological makeup manifested in a common culture, Davis 1967-163. This definition, rendered by the Georgian communist J. V. Stalin in 1913, though widely quoted without attribution, adds to previous definitions, that there be a community not only of language and culture but also of territory. The intent of this definitional dispute is to refute the principle of national cultural autonomy articulated by the Austrian Marxist Otto Bauer. According to Bauer, the nation is defined by the totality of people who are united by a common fate, history, so that they possess a common national character, Davis 1967-150. Bauer's definition clearly implies that a nation exists whenever a people believe that they are a nation. While Stalin's Marxism and the national question had V.I. Lenin's blessing as the Bolshevik position on the national question, in practice Lenin's stance was much more conciliatory than Stalin's. After Lenin came to view imperialism as the framework for revolutionary struggle, his understanding of the national question evolved in tandem. If indeed imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism, if it is moribund capitalism, and if it is a world system of colonial oppression and the financial strangulation of the great majority of the world's people located in oppressed countries by a handful of advanced, oppressor, countries, then the issue of anti-imperialism is central to the revolutionary struggle. This becomes much clearer in the founding of the Third International, see Chapter 3 for elaboration of this issue. The founding of the Third International elevated the national question to the top of the agenda of the radical workers' movements and relocated the center of those movements on the margins of the advanced capitalist countries of that time, the Eurasian landmass occupied by the Russian Empire, China, India, and much of the Muslim world. The strongest appeal of the radicals was to the colonial slaves of the capitalist world. The intellectuals and revolutionaries from the dark world, including people of African descent, were attracted to communism precisely because of the Bolsheviks' nationalities policy. In Chapter 5 we will see how E. Franklin Fraser discusses the Bolshevik nationalities policy in his book Race and Cultural Contacts in the Modern World. As we can see in the above discussion, there is a great deal of definitional ambiguity in the debate about the national question. Nonetheless, most of us tend to assume that we know what constitutes a nation, which of course is the strength of the Bauer position. Later scholarly investigations of the concept of the nation tend to show that the notion is not self-evident. Scholars mostly agree, however, that a nation is not a God-given way of classifying people, nor is it an inherent political destiny. While many people assume that nationalism is an ideology that develops logically among members of a nation, many scholars of nationalism hold that, historically speaking, nationalism comes before nations. Nationalists are said to construct nations by fashioning pre-existing cultures into a nation by inventing cultures, or by obliterating pre-existing cultures. Like all nationalism, black nationalism can be viewed as the reaction of formerly disparate groups of African descent to a sense of mutual oppression and humiliation. Prior to the African slave trade, African people, like their European counterparts, were organized around local cultural loyalties and traditions. 
In such societies, tradition as embodied in the wisdom of living elders or revered ancestors is sacred. In the slave states of the United States, where enslaved Africans were a minority of the population expressions of African culture were stringently prohibited. Some scholars argue that such practices destroyed the traditions of the enslaved population within a generation or two. Other scholars argue that the traditions were driven underground, giving rise to a kind of surreptitious pan-Africanization of the culture of the ordinary field hands, which persisted despite the formal adoption of Christianity by the overwhelming majority of Africans within the United States. Both narratives recognize that this experience endowed them with a sense of common experience and identity, the root of nationalist consciousness. The identity developed in the 17th century between Africans and slavery was the edifice upon which a racial division of labor was constructed. This near-absolute correlation between blackness and this most sordid social rank played havoc with the social psychology of whites, who dreaded falling into this unenviable social status themselves. For this reason the lines were starkly drawn and reinforced with all of the power that racial myths could muster. Following slavery, many whites fought to maintain the prerogatives of racial privilege with respect to the black population. These practices led to the restriction of black people from certain desirable jobs, neighborhoods, social activities, and so forth. The dehumanization of blacks became the preoccupation of scientists and scholars following the precepts of social Darwinism to a coherent explanation and justification of the relegation of black people to a subordinate status. Black nationalism as an ideology has long been an element in the structuring of political action and cultural standpoint. It was both an affirmation of the humanity, strength, and dignity of black people and in an opposition to the degrading myths fashioned by whites. It is generally believed to have emerged during the 18th century as a challenge to racist ideology that sought to justify the enslavement of people of African descent within the labor force of a presumably democratic country. Until the establishment of the American Colonization Society in 1816, free blacks in the North were called Africans and regarded themselves as Africans, despite the fact that educated blacks were quite distinct culturally from Africans on the continent. Uneducated blacks, in contrast, because of their isolation from whites and their contact with slaves from the West Indies and New Saltwater slaves, directly from Africa, were substantially African. Free blacks felt that the American Colonization Society was a scheme to strengthen slavery by sending free blacks back to Africa. By the 1850s, emigration appeals were echoed by several black leaders, Martin Delaney, Henry Highland Garnett, and Alexander Crummel. The desire to establish an independent nation outside of the control of the United States was a consequence of the belief of large numbers of free black people that their experience outside of the slave states was marked by racist treatment, almost an amount to the treatment of their enslaved brethren. Slavery required the integration of the enslaved Africans with the white slave owners, but it was the non-slave North that took the lead in the establishment of segregated institutions. These institutions existed in practically every sphere, including schools, churches, hospitals, jails, hotels, and public conveyances. Blacks in the North were also subject to pogroms, not to mention the possibility of being enslaved because of the stipulations of the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act. The Negro Convention movement was the most effective forum for Afro-American protest in the antebellum period, and the debates within the convention reflected the shifting tides of the black struggle. Until the 1850s, the advocates of moral suasion and the absorption of blacks into the larger society predominated within the convention movement. With the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, the Kansas-Nebraska Bill of 1854, the Dred Scott Decision of 1857, and the general proliferation of scientific racist theories, the attitude of blacks about strategies and tactics for liberation from North American racist oppression were transformed. Frederick Douglass 
who had opposed Henry Highland Garnet's call for insurrection in 1843, by the 1850s began to believe that liberation could be obtained only by resorting to violence. Underneath these debates, however, was the resistance of the slaves themselves, ranging from the Denmark Vesey Conspiracy of 1822 to the Nat Turner Rebellion of 1831, and the resistance exemplified by thousands of runaway slaves. Such resistance ultimately inspired John Brown's bold assault on Harper's Ferry in 1859, which indicated that the die had been cast, North American civil society could no longer live with the contradiction of enslavement. With the defeat of Reconstruction, the promise of a non-racial democracy was buried beneath a system of racist terror institutionalized throughout the South. It was in this context that Booker T. Washington emerged as the most distinguished black leader of this period, 1895-1915. Washington did not mount a frontal attack on white supremacy but counseled blacks to learn the value of manual labor, hard work, and thrift and to practice the Christian virtues of being clean and quiet. These values rather than empty rhetoric and flashy protest would enable blacks to win acceptance. Although Washington's strategy is commonly referred to as accommodationist, many scholars and militants in the black freedom struggle recognize a nationalist component in his emphasis on self-help and his promotion of black businesses and economic development. While Ida B. Wells Barnett W.E.B. Dubois, and William Monroe Trotter championed a militant protest movement in opposition to Washington's accommodationist approach, World War I brought new radical actors on the scene known generically as the New Negro Movement. The New Negro Movement was part of the revolutionary anti-colonial and socialist movements that shook the capitalist world. Most members of this movement upheld the race-first viewpoint, that race must be the first concern of people of African descent. The numerous betrayals at the hands of white allies had taught them that race was the first principle of white America and was thus their most important challenge. Race was not merely an expression of class relations, it was the main stratifying process of U.S. society. This is not to say that there cannot be principled alliances, but such alliances had to be constructed on the basis of independent black leadership and the insistence that opposition to racism be a fundamental principle of all members of the alliance. For the most radical among the new Negro militants, represented by the African Blood Brotherhood, Cyril Briggs, Richard Moore, and Hubert Harrison, race first made sense in the context of an anti-capitalist and socialist perspective because they understood that the class structure was constructed on the basis of race. That is, the subordinate status of black people and white supremacy were inextricably intertwined with the formation and consolidation of capitalist civilization and no progress was possible unless anti-racism and respect for the self-determination of black people were central to the grievances of all the movements. During World War I and its aftermath, the New Negro Movement fueled the flame of revolt. In 1921 a State Department official by the name of Charles Latham argued that Marcus Garvey's movement was considered dangerous because its agitation would find a more fertile field of class divergence than Bolshevism would likely find in the United States. Garvey's organization, The Universal. Negro Improvement Association, is the largest organization in the history of the black freedom struggle. The African Blood Brotherhood had been the most sophisticated organizational expression of new Negro radicalism, but its leaders liquidated the issue of independent black leadership by joining the Communist Party of the United States and allowing it to disband the African Blood Brotherhood. Yet the former members of the African Blood Brotherhood leadership were instrumental in pushing the Communist Party of the United States toward a revolutionary perspective and enrolling it in the fight for racial justice to a degree unmatched by any other predominantly white organization. In the 1930s the Moorish American Science Temple was prominent on the streets of many black communities, providing a milieu from which much of the leadership of the early Nation of Islam emerged. Later the Nation of Islam would become the largest of the black nationalist organizations after the Universal Negro Improvement Association. 
During the 1930s the movement to stop Benito Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia was one of the broadest manifestations of nationalism in the African diaspora. W.E.B. Dubois was ousted from his position in the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People NAACP, because he advocated the development of black economic power within black communities, taking advantage of the existing racial solidarity and sense of common destiny. During this period Dubois also wrote his masterpiece, Black Reconstruction in America which took the revolutionary nationalism of the new Negro militants to a new level and articulated the most sophisticated class analysis of the world system to be known until the 1970s. Student Revolutionaries, Nationalist in Form Internationalist in Scope In February 1968 police opened fire on a black student demonstration against a segregated bowling alley in Orangeburg, South Carolina, killing three students from South Carolina State College, in what has come to be known as the Orangeburg Massacre. Owusu Sadao Kai, Howard Fuller, who was an organizer for the Foundation for Community Development, called a meeting in Durham, attended by representatives from 16 different colleges, including Nelson Johnson, a student at North Carolina A&T State University and a protege of Sadao Kai's. All of the representatives who attended the meeting were given the responsibility of using their own creative resources to organize a demonstration on each of their campuses. It was this event that brought Nelson Johnson's leadership capabilities to the attention of the general public. In the wake of this demonstration, Johnson would emerge as the most influential leader of radical forces in the historic Greensboro community and at the historic North Carolina A&T State University. He would also emerge as the leader of the soon-to-be-formed Student Organization for Black Unity. In March 1968 students at the historically black Howard University staged a sit-in at the university's administration building, and the sit-in became a takeover. Introducing to a new generation a tactic that was repeated at many campuses across the nation. By 1969 black students had staged such takeovers on 50 campuses over a variety of issues focused on their need for a relevant education, most often black studies, more black professors, and a variety of student rights. In April 1968 the Students Afro-American Society and the Students for a Democratic Society at Columbia University formed an alliance in opposition to the university's plan to take over land in the adjoining black community to build a gym and the university's support of the war in Vietnam via its Institute for Defense Analysis and other institutions. They staged a takeover of several buildings at the university, demonstrating the confluence of multiple movements on the liberal university, the movement for minority rights which started as a quest for inclusion and wound up with an ambition to transform society, the movement against U.S. hegemony over the world system by military and other means, and the movement for a culturally liberated society, Wallerstein and Star 1971. It began to dawn on the elites of liberal U.S. society that in fact they were in the first stages of a new kind of war that they had not anticipated, a revolution in the midst of the liberal university, which was the representation of what was most ideal about U.S. society and especially at a time when they had thought that they were on the way to meeting the challenge posed by Gunnar Myrdal in his famous 1944 book, An American Dilemma. In late May 1968 the Third World Liberation Front, which included the Black Student Union, in alliance with the Progressive Labor Party and the Students for a Democratic Society, occupied the administration building at San Francisco State University, demanding preferential admissions for minority students the rehiring of a Chicano professor who was being fired, and the removal of an Air Force ROTC program, XPL Cadre 1979. In 1969 the Third World Liberation Front began a strike at the University of California, Berkeley, demanding an autonomous Third World College. These snapshots provide only a glimpse of what was going on during that time. 
What is important here for those who are familiar with the dynamics of social movements and the social groups that often come to the fore is that the peculiar position of African Americans, based mostly in the working class and belonging to internally colonized strata, gave them the social distance of the colonized world without but also the geographic and personal proximity to the levers of power, which greatly magnified their social location in the world configuration of the struggles between the powerful and the powerless. Given their social location in the configuration of power in U.S. society at that time as mostly residents of marginalized working-class communities with a sense of collective solidarity across U.S. society, they combined class, national, and racial solidarities in a manner that made them the ideal candidates not for simple inclusion in U.S. society but for radical transformation of that society in a manner that was democratic, egalitarian, and just. I focus first on the interactions of some of the known organizations situated in or derived from the black student movement. I begin by looking at the history of the Revolutionary Action Movement RAM. What little public image there is of RAM tends to be that of inner-city militants plotting urban guerrilla warfare on the white world. It is important that RAM came very much out of the student movement, as did its more moderate older cousin, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee SNCC, and one of its offshoots, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. According to Maxwell Stanford, 2003, RAM evolved out of the Southern Civil Rights Movement and the Black Nationalist Movements in Northern Cities. While he was a student at Case Western Reserve University, Don Freeman of Cleveland, Ohio, became involved in the Civil Rights Movement in February 1960 in support of the sit-in at Woolworth in Greensboro, North Carolina. Two months later Freeman attended a socialist conference at the University of Michigan, which led him to enlist in the ranks of socialists for the rest of his life. In the summer of 1961, at the end of the Freedom Rides, Robert Williams called for blacks to arm for self-defense and come to Monroe, North Carolina, for a showdown with the Ku Klux Klan. During that same summer, the League for Industrial Democracy had planned to form a student branch to be called Students for a Democratic Society SDS. SDS had planned to hold a conference on the New Left during the conference of the National Student Association. Since the news of Williams's flight into exile reached movement circles during the conference, SDS's black cadre met to discuss developing a radical black movement that would help to create conditions that would make it favorable to bring Williams back into the country. One Freeman became the coordinator of this group, which included a student from Central State College in Wilberforce, Ohio, where Max Stanford, aka Muhammad Ahmad, was a student. During the fall of 1961, an off-campus chapter of SDS called Challenge was created at Central State. Stanford 2003-142. The members of Challenge included students who had been expelled from Southern colleges for sit-in demonstrations, some who had been involved in Freedom Rides, and students from the North who had been members of the Nation of Islam and other black nationalist organizations. Freeman, who was a teacher in Cleveland, was a mentor to this group. While the group did not have a particular ideology, they became radicalized during a year of conflicts with the Central State Administration over students' rights. In the spring of 1962 the journal Studies on the Left published Harold Cruz's article Revolutionary Nationalism and the Afro-American, which described African Americans as an oppressed nation within a nation, a domestic or internal colony. Freeman wrote a letter to challenge members encouraging them to read the article, which was being studied by black radicals elsewhere, who were also contemplating establishing a movement in the North similar to the Nation of Islam, using the tactics of the SSEC, but outside of the Congress of Racial Equality CORE and the NAACP, Stanford 2003-144. This then was the impetus for the formation of RAM, after which two of the cadres, Wanda Marshall and Max Stanford, returned to their communities to organize. In Philadelphia, 
Stanford worked with the SNCC and met with the leader of a black Marxist group called Organization Alert, who invited him to join. But when Freeman came to Philadelphia and met with the Organization Alert leader, he found the group to be too bourgeois intellectual and insufficiently activist. Stanford was not convinced but later had a fierce disagreement with the Organization Alert leader, who harshly criticized the SNCC and argued that it would never change, Stanford 2003-146. In November 1962 Max Stanford and Wanda Marshall met with Malcolm X at the Shabazz restaurant of Temple No. 7 in Harlem. When Stanford asked Malcolm X if he should join the Nation of Islam, Malcolm replied that he could do more for the Honorable Elijah Muhammad by organizing outside of the Nation of Islam. Soon after this meeting, Stanford drafted a position paper entitled Orientation to a Black Mass Movement, Part 1, and circulated it among much of the black left in Philadelphia. The document called for a focus on black working-class youth who had the sustained resentment, wrath, and frustration toward the present social order that if properly channeled could revolutionize black America and make it the vanguard of the world's black revolution, Stanford 2003-146-147. As the tempo of white resistance to the Southern movement increased with the bombing of a Birmingham church, killing four young girls in the fall of 1963, the concept of nonviolence suffered a setback in the eyes of SNCC workers, Ahmad 1978-5. Ram organized a student wing called the Afro-American Student Movement, which organized chapters in Nashville, Fisk University, Detroit, and Los Angeles. The movement called for a student conference on black nationalism in May 1964 hoping to expand the horizons of the Southern movement beyond liberal integrationism, which Ram saw as limited, even in the militant practices of the SNCC. Ahmad argues that the convening of this conference was the catalyst that eventually led some sections of the civil rights movement to take up the struggle for black power. Through the summer after the conference, Ram was able to get the permission of SNCC Chair John Lewis to work with the SNCC in Mississippi. During this period Ram militants encountered the hostility of white SNCC workers who opposed the idea of an all-black organization and the idea of armed self-defense. In the fall 1964 edition of Ram's journal, Black America, Don Freeman explained that the first session of the conference evaluated bourgeois reformism, as articulated by the integrationist civil rights movement, which for him included CORE, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SCLC, the SNCC, and the NAACP. For Freeman this session substantiated Dubois' conviction that capitalism cannot reform itself, a system that enslaves you, cannot free you, Freeman 1964-15. But the conferees were also critical of white Marxists who sought to lead a white working class who wanted to reform capitalism and not revolutionize the social order. The only revolutionary force in the United States, they agreed, was embodied in the Afro-American struggle, and thus would be led by black radicals rather than opportunistic white Marxists. On the whole, the conferees supported Malcolm X's position that the struggle of African Americans should be for human rights and not civil rights. The refusal of the U.S. government to enforce the 13th and 14th Amendments rendered Afro-American slaves a colonized nation within the United States, not U.S. citizens. Their position was said to be analogous to that of the Afro-Asian and Latin American nations under Western imperialism, Freeman 1964-16. Finally the conferees argued that the prerequisite for a black revolution in the United States was a fundamental cultural revolution, a re-Africanization of black people in the United States, which would renounce bourgeois materialistic values, pathological egoism, individualism, and the rat race. Black people must know their own history in order to demolish the inferiority instilled by American indoctrination, Freeman 1964-16. Greenwood, Mississippi 
became the base for revolutionary black nationalist activity. Ahmad himself and Eskiatore, aka Ronald Snellings, were leading ram cadres in Greenwood. They spoke with black SNCC workers about the necessity to control their own organization. Both Ahmad and Turi argued that SNCC field staff were increasingly won over to the cause of black nationalism. Askia Ture affirms the good intentions of many of the white activists in the SNCC is dedicated to the liberation of black people but points out that they realize that eventually they would have to organize white working people to change this country. Ture contrasts the humility of many of the white SNCC workers with the arrogance of Sandra Casey Hayden. Ture would later join the Atlanta Project in 1966 and participate in the drafting of what has been called the SNCC's Black Power Position Paper. The Atlanta Project under the leadership of Bill Ware was constituted in the wake of violent uprisings in the black communities of Atlanta known as Vine City and Summerhill. The intent of the Atlanta Project was to increase black community control over the public decisions which affect their lives, a position that by then was part of the apparatus of the federal government's anti-poverty programs. The eminent historian of the black freedom struggle Claiborne Carson argues that the project emphasized racial identity as a means to eliminate racial inferiority and political impotence. Although Stokely Carmichael initially opposed the position of Atlanta Project staff for political, not ideological, reasons, he became greatly influenced by many of their positions. Indeed, the debate clarified his ideas and made him believe that it was time to challenge John Lewis as chair, whose soft-spoken commitment to nonviolence, continuing participation in the planning of the White House Conference on Civil Rights, and relationship with the SCLC made him seem out of step with the mood of most of the other SNCC staff. Carson 1981-202-203. Carmichael emerged the victor in the contest with Lewis, since his views were more representative of the majority of the SNCC staff. But Carmichael's subsequent announcement of the black power concept created a furor within the civil rights movement. At a meeting with the SCLC, the SNCC, and court at Yazoo City, Mississippi, Floyd McKissick spoke out in favor of the black power concept. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. attempted to convince Carmichael and others that they should not use a slogan that would confuse our allies, isolate the Negro community and give many prejudiced whites, who might otherwise be ashamed of their anti-Negro feelings, a ready excuse for self-justification, Carson 1981-210. Carmichael and McKissick responded that there was nothing wrong with the concept of black power since it was the same kind of group power other ethnic groups had sought. My attention has long been riveted on this debate. As I have said elsewhere, Bush 1999, this discussion must have clarified in the minds of the discussants that the civil rights era had come to an end. The utter desperation signaled in King's remarks, who himself had come to symbolize the moral high ground which the civil rights movement had so long commanded, spoke volumes about black people's dependence on liberal allies and the naked power relations behind it. Carmichael and McKissick could do little more here than state the obvious, but the very obviousness of their statement only confirmed the verdict that we might have reached if we had heard only King's remarks. It was time on all sides for a reassessment of direction, Bush 1999-168-169. The black freedom struggle at this point was entering the revolutionary whirlwind that encompassed almost all areas of the world in the late 1960s and early 1970s, what Wallerstein refers to as the World Revolution of 1968. While this revolution was not about the seizure of state power, which is the image that we normally have of revolutions, it was a revolution because it broke the back of the reformist co-opting liberal geoculture, which had been the basis of stability of historical capitalism since 1848. Malcolm X had been the prime mover in this transformation, but at this point Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., himself could no longer deny the obvious and henceforth moved rapidly into this whirlwind. 
I cover this process in more detail in Chapter 6, Black Power, The American Dream, and The Spirit of Bandung, Malcolm X and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., in the Age of World Revolution. The Example of the Student Organization For Black Unity In 1969 the post-SNCC Black Student Movement began to take shape with the creation of the Student Organization for Black Unity, SOBU formed in May 1969 at a meeting at North Carolina A&T State University in Greensboro. SOBU held its first national convention in October 1969 at North Carolina Central University in Durham. The group's focus was pan-Africanist, but its self-description claimed a wider sphere in the sense that it claimed to be nationalist in form, internationalist in scope, and scientific in principle. The designation scientific here, of course, refers to the scientific and scientific socialism. The focus of Sobu's mass work included African Solidarity Day, South Africa, the Pan-Africanism of Malcolm X, and a report on the United Nations. In August 1972, Sobu changed its name to Youth Organization for Black Unity YOBU, to reflect its movement toward the wider world, which it sought to organize as part of the desired revolutionary transformation. The leadership of Sobu had viewed the SNCC in 1966 as a synthesis of the ideas and approaches of Dr. King and Malcolm X while they noted the simultaneous emergence of eruptions in inner-city areas inhabited by black folk and confrontation politics on campuses, they did not initially use their analytic framework to understand and contextualize these phenomena. Confrontation politics escalated on campuses to the point that at Cornell University, black students with guns took over buildings. These were dense times, everywhere black folk were in struggle against forces who wanted to maintain the status quo, including black guardians of the existing social order. On May 21, 1969, a student by the name of Willie Grimes was shot to death at North Carolina A&T State University when university students came to the assistance of students at Dudley High School who were struggling against an extremely authoritarian administration supported by local authorities with brutal measures. Only weeks before, the university had been the scene of the founding meeting of Sobu, but the proceedings were interrupted when students from Dudley High School walked out of their school to get support from the college students for their struggles. The conferees took leave from the conference to assist the high school students, but the situation was of long standing and led to continued struggles until the shooting occurred, Berman's own 2003-100-101, Waller 2002-48-49. In the late 1960s the community activist Owusu Sadaukai became a confidant of SNCC activists Cleve Sellers and Stokely Carmichael and was a major player in the development of Sobu in the Malcolm X Liberation University, Johnson 2003-484, Belvin 2004. During May 1969, many black students were calling for the formation of black studies programs at historically white universities and colleges. There was a second tendency among other black students who focused on the need for independent educational institutions. The Center for Black Education was established by students at Federal City College in Washington, D.C., and Malcolm X Liberation University was established by students at Duke University. The latter took hardline positions against black studies programs that were not really under the control of black people and against people in the social sciences. Technical skills were stressed because those are the skills needed for nation-building and for the construction of Africa with the departure of the colonial powers. Sobu had been part of this network of organizations spawned by what Peniel Joseph calls the SNCC Diaspora, Joseph 2006-260. Both Sobu and the National Association of Black Students, NABS, were formed by students who had been active within the National Student Association. Sobu cadres broke from the National Student Association in May 1969, and NABS broke from the National Student Association in October 1969. 
Sobu National Assembly 1972. According to Sobu Kadri's speaking at the 1972 Sobu National Assembly in Epps, Alabama, NABS was more service-oriented than Sobu but was also troubled by conflicts between Gwen Patton and Willie Rinks and Cleve Sellers, Sobu National Assembly 1972. 3. In the beginning, the Sobu program was very pan-Africanist in its emphasis, oriented toward the process of nation-building in Africa. Militants were encouraged to develop technical skills so they could move to Africa and use those skills to build African countries. But Samoro Michel cautioned Owusu Sadao Kai, of Sobu's sister organization Malcolm X Liberation University, that they did not need more people, they needed someone to intervene with the U.S. government who was central to both the still-existing colonial structures in some African countries and the neocolonial structures that existed almost everywhere else in Africa, Waller 2254-55. 4. This discussion led to the convening of African-American radicals to plan African Liberation Day in support of the liberation movements in Africa and eventually to form the African Liberation Support Committee, which consisted of black organizations from a number of perspectives who united around the need to support the African liberation movements. Despite the discarding of the Back to Africa emphasis at the insistence of the representatives of the African liberation movements, Sobu continued to emphasize their African identity above all else in their program. According to Nelson Johnson, the chairman of Sobu, Pan-Africanism meant that the liberation of blacks in the United States was impossible without first liberating Africa. This conception of Pan-Africanism held, further, that black people are a world community without national or class differences, and that the enemy is white people, all white people, Berman Zone 2003-105. However, it was Emil Cabral, the leader of the liberation movement in Guinea-Bissau, who argued that sending support to the liberation movements should be a secondary task for them that their primary responsibility should be to unite with other people within the United States to overthrow U.S. imperialism, including white people, Waller 2002-55. In debate with comrades from the continent and the Pan-African Student Organization in the Americas, PASOA, the leadership of Sobu-Yobu learned the inadequacies of what they termed their own infantile Pan-Africanism. Despite the intellectual heavyweights from around the country who were associated with Sobu-Yobu, they could not hold their own in the debates with the Marxist-inspired militants of Passoa. After the debates, the Sobu-Yobu leadership was struck by the analytic power of Marxism and in 1971 began their own study of Marxism, which opened them to the larger world in unanticipated ways. They found Marxism to provide an insight into the structure of the entire society, the economic system, the relationships among social groups, race, class, nations, parties, and to a lesser extent gender an understanding of social transformation or revolution, and so on, Berman Zone 2003-121-122. Similar paths would be taken by a variety of militant black nationalist organizations whose origins were in that tumultuous period in U.S. and world history from the late 1960s to the early 1970s. Some of the organizations traversed this ground carefully and enhanced their analytic and practical capacities through creative use and development of the forms of knowledge that have been produced within the world anti-systemic movements. However, since these movements were all involved in efforts to change the world, they ran the same risks as any organization with such a risky vocation, from repression to disillusionment. In the early 1970s many of the black student revolutionaries departed the campuses to work in communities and factories. Some became full-time cadres in the political organizations that were formed during that period. The movement toward a more orthodox Marxist formulation among some part of the black left meant for the most part a departure from the academy. 
This led to an alteration of the relations of force within the universities such that they were less the terrain of struggle than they had been during the period from 1967 to 1973. Those intellectuals who remained in the universities strove to get intellectuals to use their knowledge to serve the black liberation movement. One of the key figures in this very small stratum was Abdul Al-Khalimat, founder of a revolutionary think tank known as People's College, a central organizer of the black studies movement, and author of the popular textbook Introduction to Afro-American Studies, a People's College primer. In a proposal to black intellectuals to serve the black liberation movement through a year of study and struggle in 1974-1975, Al-Khalimat declared that black intellectuals had not lived up to their historic responsibilities of intellectual seriousness and social responsibility. Instead, as Brother E. Franklin Fraser has stated, most Negro intellectuals simply repeat the propaganda which is put out by people who have large economic and political interests to protect. They have failed to study the problems of the Negro in America in a manner which would place the fate of the Negro in the broad framework of man's experience in the world, Al-Khalimat 1974-3. Al-Khalimat continued. Comrade Mao Zedong in a 1941 report to a cadre's meeting summed up a situation which existed then in China in a way which speaks to many of the problems facing us, we have not done systematic and thorough work in collecting and studying materials on, our conditions, and we are lacking in a climate of investigation and study of objective reality. To be crude and careless, to indulge in verbiage, to rest content with a smattering of knowledge, such as the extremely bad style of work that still exists among many comrades. To correct these shortcomings Mao proposed in this essay called Reform Our Study, that extensive study of current conditions, study of history, and the study of international revolutionary experience be undertaken. It was here that Mao's famous dictum No Investigation, No Right to Speak was invoked. 1974-3-4. Alkali Matt has long argued that radical ideology is a black tradition. Moreover, it was the moral power of black religion, what E. Franklin Fraser called a nation within a nation and the collective strength of black nationalism that held the tradition together, while pan-Africanism and socialism have been the central ideological notions underlying the debate about self-determination and which way forward. So for Al-Khalimat it is no mystery that black intellectuals and activists were so central to the intellectual and political uprising of the 1960s. As the mass mobilization that was the foundation of 1960s radicalism subsided, however, or as the seawater receded, the fish with much less water to swim in underwent an involution which, as Max Elbaum and others have argued, focused on the internals of party building.5. What is positive about this internal focus is the development of a theory that broadened the perspectives of the militants but that, under the influence of a centralized top-down organizational apparatus, limited the ability of the militants to act upon what they increasingly came to understand. While such an involution fostered the formation of dogmatic approaches, Throughout the movement there was also an increasing awareness of the significance not only of class but also of race and gender. While there was still much wrangling about the priority of class analysis over race and gender, which were often viewed as secondary contradictions in which the possibility of bourgeois interests were being concealed in the guise of race and gender grievances, one of the most important consequences of this period of revolutionary struggle is that at least these issues were now on the table in all of these organizations. It would be only a matter of time before the unquestioned adherence to the class first would no longer be hegemonic within the anti-systemic movements of the United States and core states. The Re-Emergence of the Black Women's Movement Linda Burnham, co-founder of the Women of Color Resource Center at Memphis State University, and member of a family with a long history in the black liberation, working class, and world revolutionary movements, has argued that the idea that race, 
class and gender are interrelated dynamics of power and oppression has gained sufficient currency in the academic world to go by the shorthand intersectionality, Burnham 2001-2. Such impeccable academic pedigree is testimony to the power of a cadre of black feminist scholars who have acted against the grain of scholarly knowledge. Black feminist thought has a long pedigree in the political work of black women, however, as Patricia Hill Collins insistently argues.6. Here I wish to follow Burnham's exploration of the evolution of black feminist thought during the 1960s and 1970s as a critique of the masculinist norms of the black power and civil rights movement of that period, though this was not a new phenomenon. Indeed, we should note that Ida B. Wells's activism predated all of the male heroes that we have historically lionized. More on this topic in Chapter 4, Black Feminism, Intersectionality, and the Critique of Masculinist Models of Liberation. Burnham traces the black feminism of the current era to the Black Women's Liberation Committee of the SNCC. Black women in the SNCC who had been central to the fight against racism began to rally around the minimizing of their talents, skills, and contributions by the men with whom they had been working. So intently, these women had been central to the elaboration of the struggle against racism as deeply structured institutional arrangements that required collective political action to challenge both the institutional structure within the white world and the mental and social psychological structures within the black world. It was thus in the course of struggle that they learned important lessons about how to mobilize people, run meetings, and engage in a collective process of reflection and decision-making. These collective processes enabled women in the SNCC not only to contribute significantly to the transformation of the struggle against racism, in which the SNCC was central, but also to view their work in the SNCC as a site from which they could identify sexism as a major factor in their lives. Attempts to raise this issue within the SNCC met the resistance of those who argued that women's liberation was a divisive issue that would distract the organization from its main goal of combating racism. Black women who persisted in raising this issue were deemed saboteurs and had to find an autonomous setting in which black women could develop their ideas, their politics and their methods of struggle, Burnham 2001-5. This was the context within which the Black Women's Liberation Committee of the SNCC became the Black Women's Alliance, under the leadership of Fran Beale, author of an important text called Double Jeopardy, To Be Black and Female. The concept of double jeopardy was that black women's femaleness was not divisible from their blackness. Burnham 2001-5. Beale argued that it was not so much that the identification of sexism within the black community was divisive but that the real divisiveness stemmed from the suppression of black women's initiative in the political arena. The internationalism of the struggle via the influence of the anti-colonial movements of this period brought the issue of class and capitalism before the entire movement, so that the Black Women's Alliance transitioned into the Third World Women's Alliance and included Latinas and Asian American women in its membership. The articulation of race, class, and gender as a triad became a fundamental component of the political assertion of the Third World Women's Alliance to establish its relationship with and its distinction from the middle-class white women's movement. In 1977 the Comahee River Collective, a Boston-based group of black feminists, published a manifesto that argued, the most general statement of our politics at the present time would be that we are actively committed to struggling against racial, sexual, heterosexual, and class oppression and see as our particular task the development of integrated analysis and practice based upon the fact that the major systems of oppression are interlocking, quoted in Burnham 2001-7. Authored by collective members Barbara Smith, Beverly Smith, and Amita Fraser, the manifesto traced the development of the group's thinking from a focus on racism and sexism to an increasing focus on heterosexism and economic exploitation. The Comahee River Collective argued for a central role for Lesbians in the elaboration of feminist theory and practice since heterosexism is such a significant form of social oppression, 
Burnham 2001-6-7. The issues covered in the last two sections of this chapter are covered in greater detail in Chapter 3, The Class First-Race First Debate, The Contradictions of Nationalism and Internationalism and the Stratification of the World System, and Chapter 4, Black Feminism, Intersectionality, and the Critique of Masculinist Models of Liberation.